When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. I am Dan Snow. And today I'm joined by Giles Milton. He's a hell of a writer, everyone. He's a hell of a writer. He's been on the podcast before. He's the guy who helped, among others, in the 1990s to turn narrative history into this bonkers global publishing phenomenon. He wrote Nathaniel's Nutmeg, a historical account of the terrible struggle between the Dutch and the English for control of the world's nutmeg in the early 17th century. He has written loads of other books, everyone known from Churchill's Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. And a couple of years ago, he wrote D-Day, The Soldier's Story, which is so good, it reads like a novel. I'm currently rereading it at the moment because as members of the History Hit Book Club no, Charles Milton is on talking about his D-Day book this month. If you wish to join the History Hit Book Club, you can join all of us who like to read these books and talk about them. If you are subscribed to historyhit.tv, just go to historyhit.tv, subscribe and check your emails because the invitation to join the book club is in there. We've been a bit oversubscribed, to be honest, with book club applications, so we're only allowing existing members of historyhit.tv to join the book club initially. And we managed to sell out Amazon's entire back catalogue of D-Day, A Soldier's Story. They run out thanks to book club demand. So we're taking things slowly. So please go to historyhit.tv, subscribe to the world's best history channel, watch all documentaries, listen to all the podcasts, our ads, and you can also therefore join the book club. So please check your inbox or your junk mail for that invitation. It goes out to all subscribers, so please check there. But it's great to have Giles Milton on this podcast because we are talking about his new book called Checkmate in Berlin. It's about Berlin after the Second World War. The hours, the days, the months after the Second World War culminating in the Berlin airlift. It is a brilliant bit of history. Absolutely fascinating. Extraordinary characters. Everything you expect from a Giles Milton masterpiece. So head over to history.tv. Join our book club. It's fun. We've got Lindsay Fitzharris coming on to talk about 18th and 19th century medicine, her wonderful book, next month. And after that, we're going for the Tudors. We're going for a good old Tudor session with Tracy Borman. So we got lots of exciting things coming up, all sorts of different periods. So please head over and join the book club. In the meantime, everyone, enjoy this wonderful podcast with Giles Melton. Giles, great to have you back on the pod. Thank you for having me on. You are prolific and you dash around history. I mean, God, how do you decide where your glance lands? So many books are written and published each year about the Second World War. 
And then I was looking at the post-war period and realised that almost nothing is written about the period sort of immediately post-war, 1945 to 49. And I began to look at the story of Berlin and I just thought this is an absolutely cracking yarn because not only is it geopolitics gone mad, it's got huge characters in it. And it completely changed the shape and destiny of both Europe and the world in those four short years. So I just thought this has got to be the next subject. And what is the subject? Because as you say, we talk about Berlin 45 so often, but you delve into the post-war history. It's so fascinating. It is fascinating. A lot of what was going to happen was decided at the Yalta conference in February 1945, when, of course, Churchill and Roosevelt flew into the Crimea to Yalta to meet with Stalin and really sort of thrash out a new global order. And part of that was their decision to divide Germany into two, with the Soviets taking the East and the Americans and British, and later the French, taking the West. And that was mirrored in Berlin as well. So the Soviets were going to get the East of the city, the Americans and the British were going to get the West. But you only have to look at a map to realise that there's a potential problem here, a major problem, which is that Berlin lay in the very heart of what was to be Soviet-occupied Germany, which meant that the Western sectors, the British and American sectors of Berlin, to get supplies and food into their garrisons, etc., they would have to cross Soviet-occupied Germany using one rail link and one road link. Now, as long as things went well with the Soviets, all that was all fine and dandy, no problems at all. But where relations to turn sour was something to go wrong, the Soviets could cut the road and rail link and the Allies would be left high and dry. They'd be left in Berlin with no possibility of getting any supplies in at all. And you point out, I'd never really thought about it before, but the Allies were basically guaranteeing that Berlin would therefore become a kind of nightmare of gangsterism and black marketeering. And you put a border between people in this life, someone's going to take advantage of it. Berlin post-war was the Wild West. It was full of gangsters, spies, ex-Nazis, British and American troops who just want to have fun. There was a thriving black market and there was tons of alcohol. So this was a kind of recipe for disaster, really. And on top of that, you have the beginnings of a very uneasy relationship between the Soviets and the Western Allies. So Berlin became this sort of microcosm for the absolute turmoil that was going to follow the Second World War. And you also point out, as you always do in your books, there's this lovely split between the grand strategy and the choices of individuals, because the people really seem to matter in this book. They really do, because the guys on the ground, they wielded immense power. I mean, one person likened them to Roman proconsuls. You know, they held people's lives in their hands. And so to look at two of them, there's the American commandant was Colonel Frank Howling Mad Howley who was this kind of red-blooded cowboy who was sent in to run the American sector. And his British opposite number was Brigadier Robert Looney Hind, who was going to run the British sector. They had very different approaches. What Colonel Frank Howley, from the very day, really, he arrived in Berlin, and he writes in his memoirs, he said, I realise that the Germans were no longer the enemy. It was the Russians who are now the enemy. From June, July 1945, the minute he arrives in Berlin, he almost declares war on the Soviets. And this puts him way out of step from the official policy in both Washington and London, who wanted to remain on good terms with the Soviets. So we've got this cowboy running the American sector, and it's all going to go downhill from there, really. Tell me, how does it go downhill? What was the ambition, how all these sectors might work with each other, and what's the reality within weeks and months? 
Well, the idea is that the city is going to be run. There's this body is set up called the Commandatura, and this has the representatives of the four powers, Soviet, British, American, and French. And this is where they're going to fight over, squabble over how the city is run, because a city as big as Berlin, you can't run it in artificial sectors. There are citywide problems, electricity, gas, feeding the population. And all of these are going to cause immense problems. Because, for example, Berlin was traditionally fed by the farmland to the east of the city. That is controlled by the Soviets. And if they want to cut off the food supplies to the Western sectors, which is exactly what's going to happen within a couple of years, this causes immense logistical problems for the Western allies. And I think Frank Howley realises right from the outset that the Soviets cannot be trusted, that Stalin's goal is not only to kick the Western allies out of Berlin, but ultimately to kick them out of Germany as well. He's the only one that realises this in 1945, and it takes another sort of 16, 18 months before suddenly this realisation hits Washington, hits London, and there is a dramatic shift in policy, and the Soviets are no longer seen as allies, they are seen as the enemy. Can we just put a word in here for the Berliners themselves? We know they'd suffered unimaginable trauma at the hands of Allied bombing and then Soviet ground troops. What was life like for the people? Yeah, well, when I was sort of researching this book, I found quite a lot of memoirs and testimonies of Berliners living in the city through these years. And my God, they make for really harrowing reading. As you say, when the Red Army came in, there was uncontrolled rape, looting, drunkenness, violence, just appalling for the women of Berlin. Some 60,000 asked for medical help having been raped, but it's believed the number of rapes is probably 10 times that. And then when the Western allies come into the city, things get slightly better for Berliners, but they're on the brink of starvation the whole time. There's simply not enough food. There's no electricity or gas. They have maybe electricity for two hours a day and often in the middle of the night. So if you wanted to cook a meal, you'd have to get up at two in the morning and quickly use the available electricity. And then, of course, there's no heating. There's no glass in the windows. And the winter of 1946-1947 is one of the coldest on record. In Berlin, it's minus 26 and you've got no glass in your windows. It's pretty miserable. And tens of thousands of Berliners died of hypothermia, of starvation or committed suicide. And do things improve or does it very much depend what sector they're in? Yeah, I think it does depend on what sector they're in. And the Soviets started playing games in about 1946, 1947. They start cutting off the electricity supply to the Western sectors because the generators are in the East. They cut down on the food available in the Western sectors, meaning the Americans and British have to bring in everything. They've got 2.4 million Berliners in their sectors that they have to keep alive. And they have a minimum ration of 1,300 calories a day. This is not a lot of food when it's minus 26 and you've not got no glass in your windows. And there's a constant wrangling between who should get what food. So both the Soviets and the Western Allies agree that food must be rationed. But it's not clear who should get the most food. So Frank Howley, the American commandant, argues that it's the elderly, the sick and the infirm who should get the most food. The Soviets say, no, it's the political classes and the journalists. These are the most important people. We need to give them the biggest rations. And Frank Howley, there's a memorable phrase at one of his meetings with the Soviet commandant. He says, you can't kick a lady when she's down. And the Soviet commandant replies, why, my dear Colonel Howley, that is exactly when you should kick them. So it's so interesting in your book, these 
face-to-face meetings. I mean, we all think of Cold War Berlin as literally divided by a high wall, but they're still the organs of collaboration at this point between all the former allies of World War II. That's right. You can move freely between the sectors. I mean, many people listening will remember seeing photos of those. You are now leaving the American sector. Or you're now leaving the British sector. But at the time, 45, 46, 47, you could still move between the sectors. And this was one major problem for the British and American was the Soviet troops crossing into the Western sectors where there were almost immediately bars and nightclubs had sprung up. And they rather liked coming to these nightclubs. And this was a disaster, basically, because they got drunk. Everyone got drunk. And it ended in violence. There were shootouts, you know, on the streets between Soviet troops and Brits and Americans. Absolutely crazy sort of Wild West stuff. And then the great turning point happens in 1946, when three major things happen, which change everything. Because up until 1946, the Western allies have been dealing with the Soviets as if they're still an allied power, as if the wartime allowance is going to continue. In 1946, Winston Churchill, no longer prime minister, makes his famous Iron Curtain speech. He goes to Missouri in America. He's introduced by President Truman. And he talks about the Iron Curtain descending over Europe, that the Soviets are trying to take over half of the European continent. And this is a sort of wake up call to everyone, a realisation that Stalin is not a benign ally. He's actually trying to take over half of Europe. It's an interesting example of kind of distant rhetoric on a political stage somewhere. Did that change things on the ground in Berlin almost straight away? Well, it has to be said that there were three things that happened in the spring of 46, which transformed everything. The first was Churchill's Iron Curtain speech, which, by the way, was very badly received in America and Britain at the time. But hot on its heels came the defection of Igor Gazenko. He was a Soviet diplomat who worked in the embassy in Canada. He defected, and he defected with an absolutely extraordinary story of espionage, namely that the Soviets had infiltrated the Western Allies' attempts to develop more nuclear weapons. And he revealed this, and this sent really shockwaves through the capitals of both North America and of Europe. And suddenly there was this realisation, my God, these Soviet Allies are not allies at all. And then there was a third thing, which was incredibly important as well, which was that George Kennan, who was an immensely brilliant sort of intellectual working at the American embassy in Moscow, he was asked to give an appraisal of how he read the situation. And he wrote his famous long telegram, which really set things down as they were. He said, there's absolutely no way the Soviets can be trusted. This was a man who knew Stalin well, who'd been in Russia for years. His long telegram was really a wake-up call to Capitol Hill and to Whitehall, that there had to be a massive and dramatic shift in policy, that they could no longer try to work alongside the Soviets as allies, that these were now the enemy. You listen to Dan Snow's history, everyone. We're talking to Giles Milton about Berlin after World War II. More after this. Romans, gods, Spartans... The wars of Alexander the Great's successors in incredible, entirely necessary detail. The Ancients podcast, it's kind of like Dan's show, except it's just ancient history. We've got the leading experts. We've got the big topics, from ancient Vietnam to the fall of Rome. Subscribe to the Ancients on History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Don Wildman. 
And on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo. We've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. And what was the immediate impact on the streets of Berlin, the practical effect of seeing the Soviets as enemies? The fallout happened, first of all, in the Kommandatura, where it turned into a bear pit, really. I mean, this was just became endless slanging matches between the Americans and British on one side and the French and the Soviets on the other. And the Soviets could really wield immense control because they controlled the power and the food going into Berlin. They had a lot of leverage there and they were more than happy to use it. And then, of course, on the back of everything that happened in 1946, I mentioned the Churchill speech and the defection of Guzenko. Then you have in the capitals of Washington and in London, a dramatic shift and formal shift in foreign policy. This is marked by two sort of great things, really. There was the Truman Doctrine and there was the Marshall Plan. The Truman Doctrine said that any country threatened by Soviet communism would be given the backing of the United States. And the Marshall Plan was a decision to pour billions of dollars into the reconstruction of Western Europe. And these two things really set alight the Cold War. The Soviets obviously were absolutely furious about these things. But for America, there was a realisation that Europe had to be rebuilt and that it was essential to have a revived Germany at the heart of Europe or else Europe was going to fail. Obviously, they had one eye on the idea of exporting American goods to a revived German economy as well. But these were really the big shifts. The sort of after effects of these played out on the streets of Berlin. And 
the people that you chart in this book, on an individual level, on the streets, how does it start to play out? Well, I suppose the rupture happens in the spring of 1948, where the Commandatura, where you've got Frank Howley and Brigadier Hind fighting it out with their Soviet opposite number, who's General Alexander Kotikov, who's been sent in by Stalin to try and wrest control of the whole of Berlin. And matters reach an absolute crisis point in June of 1948, when the Soviets do what everyone feared they would do. They cut the road and rail links from the western sectors of Germany into Berlin. Overnight, 2.4 million Berliners in the western sectors and the garrison troops, the Americans and British garrisons there, have absolutely no means of getting food and supplies into the city except by air. And thus begins the famous Berlin airlift, which has got to be one of the most extraordinary humanitarian operations ever undertaken. The airlift is now a thing of legend. The Brits and the Americans kind of accepted the Soviet challenges, decided to bring everything by air. How close were they driving a fully armoured convoy down the road from the West and just fighting their way into Berlin? Very interesting because Lucius Clay, who was the American military governor of the American-occupied zone of Germany, he wanted to do exactly that. He wanted to send an armoured battalion down the motorway and just fight any Soviet forces that came their way. But wiser heads prevailed. Truman just thought this was going to lead to the Third World War. And many others were saying, we're so close to war. So the airlift was put in motion. And it's quite interesting that if you read any American book on the airlift, the Americans, rather like with the Second World War, actually, they <laughs> claim all the credit for it. In fact, the airlift was the invention or the idea of a rather brilliant British boffin named Reginald Waite. He was never seen without his slide rule and his book of logarithms. And he worked out that there were eight airfields in Western Germany that could be used and two airfields in the Western sectors of Berlin. And he did this complex calculation and worked out that if a plane landed every 90 seconds into Berlin, it would just about be possible to keep the city alive. As I said, there were 2.4 million Berliners in the Western sectors. They required an absolute daily minimum, subsistence level minimum of 4,500 tonnes every single day. And so this was going to require planes flying in at five different levels, a few hundred feet apart from each other, and landing every 90 seconds, an immediate turnaround on the ground, back to Western Germany, and then back into Berlin again. An extraordinary operation. Reginald Waite presented his idea to the British commandant of Berlin, who said it wasn't possible. He took it to the British military governor of Western-occupied Germany, and he said it was absolutely impossible. He took it to the Americans... And they looked at it and they said, this is possible. We're going to bring in every plane that we can. And you have this amazing moment in June 1948 when planes from everywhere across the world, from Honolulu, from Hawaii, from Alaska, and from all the British colonies and dominions, they're all brought into Western Germany in order to try and pull off this airlift spectacular. What were the Soviets thinking and doing? The Soviets are absolutely convinced that this will not work. They'd seen an airlift attempted at Stalingrad and they realised that the Luftwaffe, who were, after all, pretty organised, had not managed to save the German troops in Stalingrad. They believed that the West had pulled off more than it could chew. But the Americans, rather brilliantly, they had this chap called General Tonnage Tunner. And he had spent his Second World War running guns over the Himalayas to Chiang Kai-shek's forces in China. And he had perfected the art of running an airlift. 
And so he was brought in to run the American end of the Berlin airlift. And in fact, ultimately, he'd run the whole show, the British end as well. He said that no, an airlift was feasible. It had to be run like clockwork. It had to be run using only instruments. So it's entirely dependent on plane instruments, which were not always reliable in the late 1940s. And he set this in motion. And he also realized he needed help on repairing the planes. The planes were getting a hell of a battering. They'd already been through the Second World War. They were full of dents and bullet holes. Now they were being run 24 hours a day. What did he do? He turned to the only person who could help him, which was General von Röden, a senior member of the Luftwaffe, who had an entire team of mechanics at his disposal, and he used them to repair the planes. They were brilliant engineers, as we know Germans are, and they kept the show on the road as well. So General Tunner was prepared to take help from wherever it could come. And the Soviets were, I think they were quite taken aback at just how efficiently the airlift was being run. They did everything they could to disturb it. They had yak fighters flying in the flight paths of the Allied planes. They put searchlights on the ground to try and blind pilots as they came into land as well. But none of that worked. The planes continued to get through. Was this the first trial of arms in the Cold War? And what was its legacy? Yeah, it was the first trial of arms. And also the first trial of hefty propaganda as well, I think, that General Tunner realised that this was a huge propaganda coup if he could win the Battle of the Airlift. And what he achieved, I said the daily minimum they required in Berlin was 4,500 tonnes of supplies every day. By Easter 49, he was bringing in 12,000 tonnes of supplies a day. He was bringing in more food for the Western sectors than the Soviets could feed their own people in East Berlin. So, Stalin realised that he had lost this gamble that he'd taken, and he quietly decides to open negotiations in America between Soviet diplomats and American diplomats, and he climbs down. He ends up calling off the blockade, and the Americans and the British have won the airlift, and they've kept their sectors of Berlin supplied. They have won this first showdown of the Cold War, and an immensely important one too. Let's finish up with the people of Berlin. What were their views on being suddenly the battlefield of this new superpower war? Yeah, the Berliners, was a real fear with the Western commandants as to how the Berliners were going to react to a prolonged siege where they have even less food than they were used to. And food very nearly ran out, especially wintertime when many planes couldn't get through the fog and the snow and the ice and what have you. But Berliners were led by this famous mayor of Berlin, Ernst Reuter, who would give speeches in front of, you know, half a million, a million people, Berliners would turn out to hear him give these speeches at these vast public rallies in the Western sectors of Berlin. And some of these, they're immensely moving. If you listen to them, even in German, he's calling on the world not to abandon Berlin. And he really lifted the spirits of Berliners and kept hope alive. And his role in all of this was, I think, immensely important. He's sort of Germany's Churchill, if you like. He certainly saw himself in that sort of role. And he saw Berlin, a little bit like Britain in 1940, as standing alone, as defying the forces, the powers that be. And so he kept morale up and alive. And when the airlift finally came to an end, Berlin is just poured onto the streets. And Ernst Reuter gave this great victory speech. It was a real triumph. And they realised that this had changed everything, that the West had won the first battle of the Cold War and the West was never going to abandon Berlin. Giles Milton, congratulations on a smash hit and thank you very much for coming on the podcast and telling me all about it. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. What's the book called? Checkmate 
in Berlin, and the subtitle is The Cold War Showdown That Shaped the Modern World. Boom! Nice one. <laughs> I feel we have the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Thanks, folks. You've been the wrong episode. Congratulations. Well done, you. I hope you're not fast asleep. If you did fancy supporting everything we do here at History Hit, we'd love it if you would go and wherever you get these pods, give it a little rating, five stars or its equivalent. A review would be great. Thank you very much indeed. That really does make a huge difference. It's one of the funny things the algorithm loves to take into account. So please don't ever do that. It can seem like a small thing, but actually it's kind of a big deal for us. So I really appreciate it. See you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.